sometimes I can visualize music. And before I write something, often I'll make a little kind of note, a little piece of paper, and I can put lines in there because I know what I'm thinking. They won't have the notes, but they will have the lines, so they have the forms. So the forms are kind of in my mind. But I'm also a visual artist. And I had gone to Cooper Union Art School in the old days, which is, you know, you don't get, you don't get in unless you pass these tests of whatever it is. So I almost went that way, but I always had the music, so I ended up with the music, but I still paint. And I think that the painting, the visual side, comes into my music, and that, that, that makes it more easy for me to be creative in a different kind of way. The fourth symphony, the second movement, is from a dream. And in that dream, I have painted it on a huge canvas, and I have a, a large, like an auto, Audubon going up with many lines. And in these lines where the cars are, I put pieces of music from the score. I paste it on there. So I combined, actually. So sometimes I will have, in the past, paintings that are somehow related to the music. But usually not, because it's a very different process. And the painting, you see what's there. And it's easy compared to composing, because you don't see what's there. It's all in your head or in your mind and in your thinking. And then you have to know, I notate everything. So I have to notate it and it has to stay in my mind long enough so that these areas of pitches remain there without disappearing. It's composer Gloria Coates talking about her music, about her creative process a little bit, really fascinating process and how being a visual artist uh, oftentimes inspires some of her pieces. I opened up the program with a little bit of the Fourth Symphony Second Movement, which she refers to as being inspired by a dream. And uh, the title of that is Mystical Plosives, which I, I love that title, already so evocative. Uh, Gloria writes music unlike anyone else. She is a composer so far of 16 symphonies, which makes her one of the most prolific symphonists of our time. Uh, she's written a, a ton of chamber music. I had her as a guest on the program before on the Expats show, but realized I really needed to go a lot deeper. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and on the program today, I'm going to feature the symphonies of Gloria Coates. Can't play all 16 of them, unfortunately, <laughs> much as I would love to. But uh, what I've done is I've chosen some of my own favorite movements. I'll intersperse that with conversation with Gloria and hopefully inspire you to go a little bit deeper into this unusual sound world. So what uh, Gloria is inspired by in part are microtones and overtones. And overtones, just simply put, are the pitches within a pitch. There's no such thing as a pure C or a pure A flat. Every pitch has other pitches within it, exactly like in, in the color spectrum. You think about the color blue, there's no pure blue. Blue will always have other colors within it. It's the same in music, and it's these overtones, the overtone series, as we call it, that are based on mathematical frequency ratios that really give music its complexity. And I think to a certain extent, it's emotional punch, it's emotional aspect. And microtones are, again, for lack of a better term, the pitches in between the pitches. Here in the West, we divide the octave up into 12 equal um, steps, equal pitches, but the octave can be divided into many more. Uh, there are cultures that divide it up to 20 or, or even more pitches. So there are notes in between our notes. Uh, they sound a little unsettling to us. It, it's an unusual sound, but they're highly evocative, and Gloria has been fascinated by them. Growing up in Wisconsin, though, uh, she did have a hard time finding people who could help her to notate these until a lucky workshop. There's somebody called Alexander Cherapnin who was interested in my music when I was very young. I'd gone to a lecture when I was like 18 in Milwaukee. I went to this lecture, rather frightened to go even. And I had already written some pieces that had won this National Federation of Music Clubs while I was in high school. And I was told I could not, I had actually written things like clusters and microtones and things, and that I was studying with the organist of my hometown who had gone to Peabody at one time in the 1920s. And, and he told me, I was trying to notate 
This was in high school. He said, you can't notate that. And I said, why not? He said, because it's not in any books. How can you notate something? And I was then working on the song that had these wild chords in it. And then he said, you can't, you can't use that. You can't use them. You'll have to make arpeggios out of them. And then he, he said, suppose somebody asks you, what have you written here? How could you answer that? You couldn't. And I said, there must be some way. And he said, he said, if you go up the circle of fifths far enough, you'd find probably those chords in there. Well, so what happened is when I went to this lecture, now this was like two or three years later, maybe three years later. It's called How a Composer Works. And there were a lot of consonants in that name, but I decided there'd be a real composer. So I went to that and he talked about having met Debussy and he was a Russian who had lived in Paris. And I think he had written for Diaghilev's ballets, but I didn't even know who Diaghilev was, but I knew who Debussy was. So afterwards we could ask questions. And so finally, after many questions were asked, then I raised my hand frightened. And I said, why can't you write certain things you can hear, you can even play them on the piano. Why can't you write them? And then he looked at me and he said, well, you can. And he said, what do you mean? And then he said, you can. He said, stay afterwards, I'd like to talk to you. So then he asked me if I'd ever written anything. I said, yes, but it's not really what I'm hearing. So he asked to see the music and eventually he saw it and he asked me to study with him. And at that time he was in Chicago at DePaul University. But anyway, eventually I studied with him but privately, because I was studying another, I was studying theater at the time. I stayed with him privately. And I also went to, he invited me, and so I had a scholarship to the Mozarteum one summer. So that is, he is kind of, so what he did, he gave me, he gave me while I was in the Mozarteum, some scales that he said, I, I lived in China for many years. Here are some Chinese scales. You might want to use one someday. So when I had that commission, I picked one out that I liked, and I wrote a work based on those Chinese scales for the first symphony. And after I finished it, I thought it was so kitschy. I guess you'd really, it was like a, a pseudo Chinese piece. So that's the only piece in my life that I threw away. And I thought, I'll have to write something else for that orchestra. And then somehow, overnight, in the night, because I was working on that, I thought, why can't I see if I can tune all the instruments of that strike orchestra, string orchestra, tune it to that scale that I'm using? And so I found out that I could, all the instruments could be tuned within a step and a half away. So I tuned the instrument. There was one that was still an E, I think. And then I decided to use I had to use them as open strings. So I created a little melody in which they were playing like in a mosaic form. So you could play and overlapping, so it was like legato. So I, I created this melody. And then I had two by two, the instruments would fall out into colors, different colors, and build up until it was a huge mass of colors. That was the first movement.
That's the first movement of Symphony Number no. 1 by Gloria Coates. We heard her talking about the inspiration for it. I uh, wanted to launch right into it. Let's just keep going. Let's listen to Movement 2, Scherzo. This is Edgar Howarth leading the Bavarian Radio Symphony Orchestra. That's the second movement of Symphony Number no. 1 by Gloria Coates, the scherzo, although uh, an unusual scherzo there, absolutely. But what a wonderful way of using the orchestra. Uh, I'm just absolutely struck by that. There are two more movements in the first symphony, uh, so it's a four-movement work, but I'm going to move on to a different symphony. But first, there's kind of a funny story about how these pieces came to be called symphonies. I was looking for a title. Normally, I have two titles. I have, but not at once. I usually have the first title. I try to make it sound like technically what's happening. Like the first one I did was music on open strings because I used all the open strings as a basis for that piece, which was way back in the 60s. But when I came to number seven, I couldn't find any title that worked, not a, a descriptive title, not a technical title. And it was so difficult to write all those instruments. And, and I had developed certain things, like certain microtonal things that I had done, and different, different things through the years. So by the time I did that, it was, it was so exhausting. I thought, this has to be a symphony. And I thought about it. It didn't follow the symphonic forms or anything. But it was just too big to be anything else. So I called it a symphony, symphony one. And I was going to register it with Gamma. And then I thought, as I was registering, I thought, what about those other pieces? Maybe they're symphonies too. So I went back over my works. I didn't take all the things for symphony, symphonic typing, but I took certain ones that I felt were sort of heavy. They're a heavier part of me because you can use different parts of yourself when you compose. But this was the, the deeper part of me, I guess you'd say. And so, I added up that that would be the seventh symphony. So I registered it as a symphony number seven. And then I said, can I change the titles of my other pieces? And they said, go ahead, because they weren't published. So I, I 
had that number seven and then I changed one, two, three, four, five, six. So what happened is I found out that some of the pieces that I had, oh, so then that piece was recorded by the Stuttgart radio, but it wasn't performed at that point. And I also found out that you could take recordings from the radio stations and put them on a CD. Now, I didn't know that for years. I was here. I didn't know about this. And I had all kinds of recordings around. So I picked up that one and two others that were symphonies that I had called symphonies. And I, uh, I, I asked, well, where do I send these? And so I was told, well, try CPO. A CPO is a very small but very elitist company in another part of Germany. So I sent this tape. And then after a month, I called thinking I'd be rejected. And the head of it said, he said, I, he said I, I've never heard of you. And so he said, I'll take a chance. So he put out that first CD with symphonies one, four, and seven. And they had incredible reviews everywhere. And in the US, they were distributed by Noxus. And they went around. So that sort of opened up a whole kind of a world for me. Symphony 7 has a provocative title, dedicated to those who brought down the wall in peace. Let's hear the first movement, Whirling of Time.
That's the first movement of Symphony Number no. 7, dedicated to those who helped bring down the wall peacefully. The first movement is called Whirling of Time. Let's jump right into the second movement, Glass of Time.
That's Symphony 7, the second movement now, and we heard the Stuttgart Philharmonic Orchestra, Wolf Dieter Hauschild conducting music of Gloria Coates, who is my guest on the program today. One of Gloria's most popular symphonies is Symphony Number no. 4. Well, that piece is metaphysical, and I wrote it around 1984, and what happened is, it's, it happened metaphysically. That's all I can say. My father was dying in Wisconsin, and I had just visited him. And no one knew how long he was going to live. And I would call him every day. And there was one day that I called, and um, he was alone that night. My mother said she didn't stay with him. And somehow I couldn't sleep. And I was sort of awake, kind of hard to talk about pacing, pacing the room. And then suddenly I had a feeling, a very, kind of a feeling of extreme sadness. And I started to cry. And as I was crying, I felt it was like a feeling of something leaving, leaving me, some sort of a weight leaving me. And my radio was on. And during that, that time that I was crying, and this was happening, it was a, Leopold Stokowski's version of when I'm laid in earth. And it was almost like, like I could feel my father saying that to me. And it was maybe four hours later, the phone rang, and it was my mother saying that he had died. And he had died at that time in Madison, Wisconsin. So to me, that was like a very metaphysical thing to have happened. But I couldn't compose anything because I was too sad. And it was maybe a year later that I decided to put it into music. So the first movement, what I did is I, I translated the events and my feelings all together. I put all of that into musical forms so that first movement, the pos I, I had sung the Dido Nemeas when I made it hard, because I used to sing. And it's a Pasacalia. So I took the Pasacalia part from the When I'm Late in Earth, and I, I moved it and I changed it in different levels. And around that Pasacalia, I created the events, like the crying and the telephone ringing at the end. But I did that also in musical forms. So that first movement is the event of, of the feelings I had metaphysically and being informed that he had died.
That's the first movement of Symphony Number no. 4 by Gloria Coates, and the symphony has the subtitle Chiaroscuro, which is the play of light and shadow, and the first movement is called Illumination. And we heard from Gloria about how this is a metaphysical piece, a uh, reaction to her father's death and uh, what had happened around that. Uh, it's an incredible story, very, very personal. Wonderful music by Gloria Coates from Symphony Number no. 4. As I said, I'm, I'm jumping around. I'm playing some of my favorite uh, movements of uh, Gloria's symphonies. Uh, symphony number no. 4 has been a very popular symphony for her. Many people don't even know the story. They just react to the music. They can tell that this is a very personal symphony. Uh, she says she's using the deeper part of herself. Composers write with different parts of themselves. I love when she said that. And uh, we're definitely hearing that deeper part of herself in this one. We have time for one more movement. I'm going to jump up to the later symphonies and play a movement from Symphony Number no. 14, subtitled Symphony in Microtones. This is the third movement, homage to Otto Lunin, the great Otto Lunin, the composer that Gloria studied with. For Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. 